Well, we've been talking a lot about healthcare workers and the extreme stress many healthcare workers have been under during this pandemic. It's a stressful job at the best of times, but with the pandemic, you don't have to be a healthcare worker, I think, to get an idea or to understand that it would be extremely stressful. So how many are walking away from those jobs? Joining me to talk more about this is Dr. Catherine Smart, president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me back, Jill. Uh, what, do we know numbers as far as physicians, doctors who have reached that point and have walked away? We don't have any exact numbers, but I think what we're really hearing loud and clear is just how significant the burnout is amongst physicians and all other healthcare providers across the spectrum of healthcare. You know, this was a problem even before the pandemic, but of course, just the stress and, and the harassment and all the things that have happening during COVID have just made it that much worse. So. I think that it, it's a real concern moving forward what's going to happen. And, and you know, healthcare professionals, they, they have invested a lot in their training. It takes a long time to become a healthcare provider. So when we lose someone from the system, they're not easily replaced. Well, and I think that's what seems surprising about this as well, is that the, the length of training, the expense of training and to, and to go into this because somebody wants to do this and commit to doing this with their lives, that that's, it's got to be a huge decision to when you're not, say, at the age when you're retiring, but a huge decision to walk away. No, absolutely it is. And, you know, and I think in addition to some people maybe choosing to leave the profession entirely, the other thing that we're seeing is is people, you know, maybe choosing to do something different within medicine. So they might be shifting their focus. And, And one of the areas that's really challenging in that regard is primary care. You know, we know that primary care is so important and so foundational to our healthcare system. Patients that have a longitudinal care provider uh, do much better in terms of their health outcomes. They have less utilization of acute care services over time. So it's a really important uh, predictor of health. But our, our doctors that are working in primary care, you know, they're, they're largely feel often unseen by government, under-resourced. Uh, they carry huge administrative burden. Um, and as there's fewer people choosing to provide that type of care, there's increasing pressures on them to continue to see more patients with less time and fewer resources. So some people are, are choosing not to provide that type of comprehensive primary care and use their skills in other areas in the system which are still needed, but that's not really helping us fix the problem of making sure that people have access to a longitudinal primary care provider. So there's all sorts of, you know, fallout within the system when we're not making a system that actually works for the providers within it or for patients. But as a primary care physician, does the physician not choose or cap the number of patients the physician takes on? They can. It really depends on the the situation you're in and how you work. There's lots of different models of primary care across the country, um, but they're often pulled in lots of other directions as well. You know, they're they're often still working in hospital, providing on-call services. A lot of family doctors have other areas of specialization like addiction medicine, anesthesia, emergency medicine, particularly in rural areas. So sometimes, you know, trying to balance all of those aspects of your job uh, as well as some work-life integration can be very, very challenging. And when you talk about doctors then maybe going to different parts of the healthcare system, are there other sectors or other parts of the healthcare system where you're seeing kind of that migration going because it is even less stressful? I think it's, it's you know, people stepping away from, from sometimes what we would call comprehensive family medicine. So, you know, instead of having a primary care practice in a community where you provide, you know, office-based care, hospital-based care, and all those services, some people might decide, you know, I'm going to work as a hospitalist, I'm going to work as a surgical assist, I'm going to do a niche area of practice, such as counselling or therapy or addictions medicine. Um, but it, what's really challenging right now is to have people providing that comprehensive suite of services provided by family doctors traditionally. And that's where a lot of the need is. But that's also the part of our system that's the least resourced. Um, So I think, you know, we have doctors that want to do that type of work. But as the system is currently designed, it's very, very difficult to do it and have the time and the resources to feel like you're doing the job that you want to do for your patients. So if that's what's happening, as you say, as the, the way the system is currently designed, what design changes need to be made? I think, you know, what we're hearing from newer generation of physicians is that they really want to work collaboratively with other healthcare professionals. So interprofessional care, uh, where there's a team that can approach people's problems together, you know. 
so many people now have much more complex issues that are hard to deal with when you're siloed alone in a clinic. So we need things like social workers, nurse practitioners, dietitians, therapists and counsellors to, to work with us comprehensively to address our patients' needs. So setting up teams like that really do two things. They provide better care to patients who can have that one-stop shopping for all their issues that they're dealing with. But it also allows physicians to actually be able to access the services their patients need to address their issues. And that, of course, makes people feel less burnt out because they feel like they're actually doing the job in the way they want to. So I think it's really getting away from those silos in healthcare and starting to recognize that team-based care is a much better way of addressing people's complex issues. And you mentioned this was an issue even before the pandemic. I'm guessing the pandemic has made it much worse? Yes, for sure. I mean, I think particularly in our acute care sector and people working on the front lines in hospitals, it's been really relentless. Just, you know, huge numbers of people in hospital, of course, particularly in our critical care units, really overwhelmed and people having to care for huge numbers of patients, much more than what they normally would, which of course also creates more burnout because you have that fear then, are you doing an adequate job? Have you had enough time with your patients to make sure you're not missing things? You know, especially for nurses, they're being called back from vacation, having mandatory and mandated overtime. You know, I'm hearing from physicians that have worked, you know, over a month in a row without a day off. This level of work is really hard for people to sustain, um, and and I think it's going to have long-lasting impacts in terms of people's own mental health and wellness. And is it a trickle-down effect, or when we look at this, because not all hospitals are COVID hospitals or overwhelmed with COVID patients or those cases, is it trickling down because of the ones that are, or how is that having an impact? Well, I think what's important to understand with with COVID in particular, you know, the biggest concern is, of course, people needing really intensive care. And and our ICU capacity is different at different hospitals. So you'll have some hospitals that can provide basic type of ICU care and then other hospitals that have really tertiary ICU care, meaning they can do all the really high-level critical care. So what happens in a lot of provinces is patients need to be moved to some of those higher-level institutions. So You know, you may have, for example, if there's a large COVID outbreak in northern BC, those patients are having to come down to Vancouver for some of the care they need. So even though, you know, the the location itself might be doing okay, they're often dealing with that influx of patients from other places. And then, of course, these smaller areas across our provinces are much more easily overwhelmed because they have fewer beds in their hospital to begin with, fewer staff that they're counting on. So even a surge of of a handful of patients uh, can really be impactful in a smaller centre. Uh, and so, and you kind of touched on this as far as a different approach and and making it a more uh, a workplace that works better for everybody. Uh, it doesn't sound like that's something that could be done overnight. So where would you like to see that start? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You know, these are not simple problems that have simple answers. And and if the solutions were simple, I think they already would have happened. So we certainly recognize that there's no quick fixes here. But I think what we what we want to, to see is that we move away from sort of these band-aid approaches or short-term approaches to really having all levels of government realize that our healthcare system is, is in crisis, that the people that work in it are in crisis, and they commit to actually working collaboratively between the federal government and the provincial government, having us as healthcare professionals and stakeholders there informing the conversation and that we can start to choose some of these issues to really take action on to start affecting change. So with our new uh, two health ministers that we learned about this week, I think we're really optimistic that we can sit down together and and start hammering out an agenda for, for some change. All right, Dr. Catherine Smart, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Well, just before the news to the top of the hour played for you that story about Kyle Beach, about what we now know, what happened, and just a little bit of the interview Kyle Beach gave to TSN. We want to talk more about this story and joining me to provide more of those details is Bruce Arthur, who is a sports columnist with the Toronto Star. Bruce, thank you so much for being with us. Nice to be here, Joe. Uh, I know you've written about this as well, referencing Sheldon Kennedy, which I think a lot of people, somebody a lot of people thought of when seeing this story yesterday as well. What is your take on what we know now and how these details have been released? This is something, and we're going to see how far-reaching it is, but this is something that should shake hockey pretty significantly. Um, The fact that Sheldon Kennedy could say that 
some 30 years after he was abused by Graham James, more than that, actually, now it's been more than 30 years, um, that this looks very familiar, that the same coach power dynamics were in play, the same culture of silence was in play, the same casual homophobia was in play, um, that no, that the kind of credo of hockey, right? Nobody said nothing. Uh, that should tell you something about hockey's culture. And it's not unique to hockey. I mean, we've seen abuse scandals flourish in other institutions in which the institution is bigger than the individual. So the Catholic Church, USA Gymnastics. Uh, it, I mean, junior hockey, there's a class action lawsuit right now about abuse. So that's like the different version, but abuse. This has happened in all kinds of places and continues to happen. The lesson hockey should probably take from this is that what happened to Kyle Beach could have happened to anybody. And the incentive systems that are in place that lead people to value a Stanley Cup over individuals, that's never going to change. What you need is a way for players or people within the game to go with confidence to an authority figure, which is not the NHL, and which is not evidently the NHLPA, which didn't do anything. Uh, that can actually, you need an actual system in place. And right now in hockey, I don't think they really have one. Uh, Kyle Beach didn't have to reveal his name. He didn't have to do an interview and, and come out and say, hey, look, this was me. This is the story. This is what happened to me. What are your thoughts on the fact that he did that? I think that took extraordinary courage. Uh, Kyle Beach, people had kind of figured it out from the report because the Internet is is good at that and because the report didn't kind of guard his identity as jealously as it could. But he didn't have to do that. He's playing in the third league in Germany. He's largely forgotten by the North American hockey world. But if you watch the interview and you watch the question about the 16-year-old who was later abused by Brad Aldrich, who was the video coach who had, done, who had abused uh, Kyle Beach. Um, Rick Westhead, who I'm proud to call a friend and colleague, by the way, um, he's carried enormous weight on the story, asked Kyle, what would you say to that kid? And he said, I think I'd say I'm sorry because I wasn't strong enough to keep it from happening to you. And I would say thank you because if you hadn't come forward, then I wouldn't have come forward. The only reason he knew this had happened is by Googling the name of his, of his abuser 20 years or 10 years later, right? And he found that one conviction in Michigan. Uh, and that's kind of what kicked all of this off. It takes real courage to do that because the other thing is that hockey is not always kind to the people who tell the truth about the dark side of hockey. And Kyle Beach did that. And one of the heartening things is that the reaction to him, maybe outside the NHL and in part inside the NHL, has been, I would say, more supportive than maybe some other whistleblowers in the past. Right. Do you think it's more supportive what we're seeing today? Is it more supportive than what we would have seen, say, in 2010 or what we've seen in the past? It's a really interesting question. I do think so. I do think, well, so another movement which is about reporting abuse which has been covered up by a culture of silence is me too and when you think about the the name of that movement it's it's me too right it's it's that there's more than one person that it happens to a lot of people um i think as we've gone on more truth has been told about the stuff that happens under the guise of institutions that happens under the guise of power that happens under the guise of not just sports but entertainment politics religion lots of different places uh, and I think that there is at least more public reception to say, we support you, right? Like, we, we know that you're a victim and we believe you. Those are powerful things to say. And then you get in the league today, something interesting. So Brendan Gallagher, the Montreal Canadiens, said, where was the National League Players Association on this? Players don't speak out against the Players Association very often. They don't speak out against hockey very often. The fact that Brendan Gallagher raised that very pertinent and germane question, that question of, why wasn't this guy protected by the organization, of the, the, the group of players who are supposed to protect him? That shows that the, the questions are being asked as to how this could have happened in hockey. Because, again, I hope that players in the NHL realize, from Connor McDavid down to the 750th-ranked player in this league, this could have been you. And the only way to stop it from being you is to create a better system going forward. Was there any answer given to that question? Because I think a lot of people would ask the same thing, whether out loud or not. Where was the Players Association? Well, Kyle Beach uh, reported to the NHLPA uh, in the way that he was supposed to, and nothing happened. And Don Fear, the head of the NHLPA, put out a statement today saying, for some reason it didn't happen, we let him down, and I'm sorry. I don't think that's good enough. 
I think you're going to have to explain why. Why was there a failure here that that left this guy all alone? And I don't know. We're, we'll, we'll hopefully find out. But again, hockey, like a lot of other sports, is pretty good at, at kind of letting the game wash this kind of idea away. Right? Like right now in the NFL, the NFL has 650,000 emails from the Washington football team from an investigation into a toxic work environment there. A small slice of those emails got the coach of the Oakland Raiders fired. Those emails are still not public. The report is still not public. They're hoping it goes away. The NHL might do the same here. But for the NHLPA, if you want to prove to players that you will protect them, you're going to want to tell people why you didn't protect this player. Uh, one of the, the more heart-wrenching parts of the interview Kyle Beach did with TSN uh, was he, he was asked about uh, when he told his family and, and what he told his family. And he said he told uh, his parents shortly after this happened that his mom cried for days saying that she felt responsible, like she should have protected him and that there was nothing that they could do, which, uh, I mean, I find that really heartbreaking because it wasn't his mom that let him down that should have protected him. It was the people in the in the NHL. I think every parent can feel that. I just dropped one of my sons off at uh, a tennis lesson, right? I trust the coach there. I, I trust the coaches there. Um, and I, I know them well enough and know enough about the club that I can feel good about that. I have a kid in running. I trust the coaches there. I have a kid who goes to art class. I trust that environment. Um, but as a parent, you never really know. And if you're, the, if you're the parent of a kid who makes the NHL, who's drafted 11th overall in the NHL, you have to trust that the NHL will have his best interests at heart. And that isn't always the case. And so when somebody, I, I mean, if you, if you have a kid who's, who makes the NHL, maybe you worry about concussions. Maybe you worry about going down the wrong path. Maybe you worry, in the worst case scenario, about becoming a Derek Bugard who died of an opioid overdose. Or Wayne Belak who died of suicide or was said to have died of suicide. Maybe that's what you worry about. This is something that probably a lot of parents wouldn't. But whenever you entrust your child to a coach, to a powerful person, to, uh, to an institution, this is why institutions need to be held accountable both internally and externally. Because what's more valuable, what's more precious than entrusting your child to something like that? Uh, Kyle Beach was also asked about his uh, thoughts on the NHL uh, and saying that it's inclusive, saying they let me down, they've let others down. They continue to try and protect their name over the health and the well-being of the people who put their lives on the line every day to make the NHL what it is. Uh, We know that today uh, the former Blackhawks uh, coach is meeting with Gary Bettman. Do you think that will lead to any change or anything will come of that? I would like to be able to say, Jill, that I would be that I would be surprised. Um, the question, I guess, becomes based on the report that the the independent report that the Chicago Blackhawks um, released or commissioned and released. Joel Quenville was a big part of this, and Joel Quenville wrote a fairly boilerplate, but it, like a letter of endorsement to Brad Aldrich when he left the franchise or shortly before. Um, how do you, as a league, stand behind him as a part of your product, a product that's sold to families, that's sold as a pillars of the community, as part of, of the fabric of cities and the nation? I just, maybe you can. Maybe you can say you're suspended for five games and that's it. Maybe they can find him and that's it. Um, I don't think, based on what we know right now, that the people who are in a decision-making capacity who let down uh, a player under their watch I don't know how you can, with a good conscience, say they should work in hockey ever again. That doesn't mean they won't. We'll see what Gary Bettman does. The fact that they let Joel Quenville coach a game last night, and he's only being talked to by the commissioner today, that tells me not to get my hopes up. Right. Even though we know now when you look at the evidence and, and what we what we have learned about this initially saying he didn't know what happened back in 2010, but it's clear that he did know, or at least he was in some meetings about it. I can't see, I can't square the stuff that Joel Quenville has said, saying that that this is something I didn't know about with the facts as established in the report, a report that interviewed 139 people. Um, I I just don't see how you can square that circle. Um, And also, coaches are generally, there's some stuff that they don't want to know about, but they're control freaks. That's why they're coaches. I I find it strange credulity, even during a Stanley Cup run, which would have it would have occupied an enormous amount of his attention and time, right? Like that becomes your whole life. Uh, 
I think that he would remember, and I think that he must have known. And so, what what does it tell you, by the way, that both Kevin Shevelyov, who's the general manager of the Winnipeg Jets, and Joel Quenneville, who's the head coach of the Florida Panthers, when asked about this this summer, knowing the report had been commissioned, knowing it was going to come out, both of them said, we don't know about this. I wonder what they were trusting. I wonder what kind of systems they were trusting to not be caught in a lie. I mean, maybe they believe it. Maybe there's been enough over the years that they, they just don't remember. I just don't find that to be a credible explanation. I think a lot of people would agree with you on that for sure. Bruce Arthur, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining the show. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Joe. Well, a new study taking a look at the religious landscape in Canada shows there have been some pretty big changes in recent years. They include a decline in religious affiliation, as well as a decline in people participating in individual and group religious activities. This is a study called Religiousity in Canada and its evolution from 1985 to 2019, and it used survey information and was put out earlier today by Statistics Canada. So to talk more about this is John Stackhouse, Professor of Religious Studies at Crandall University in New Brunswick. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Ms. Bennett. Nice to talk to you. Are you surprised at all that we're seeing a decline when it comes to both people who would identify as being religious or going to religious activities? No, the trend has been a pretty steep decline probably since the early 1970s. What we've seen in Canada is really kind of several trends at the same time. One is that fewer and fewer people identify themselves as being Christians of any sort. Uh, Fewer and fewer of those are going to church regularly. So there's been a decline across the country pretty much from Roman Catholics through the big churches, like the United and Anglican Presbyterian and Baptist churches, right on down to the only group that's kind of held its own uh, are the evangelical churches, roughly about 10% or so of the population. Everybody else has had pretty strong losses. The two groups that have gone up have been uh, the new religions to Canada, the world religions that have come in with the immigration changes since the 1970s. So, of course, we have more Muslims and Sikhs and Hindus and Buddhists than we ever had before. But there's still a pretty small population. All of those altogether probably don't make up 15% of the national population. And the other group that's really gone up are the people who say, I don't belong to any religion at all, the so-called religious nuns. And they're at least a quarter now of the population and still growing. Hmm. And with that last group you mentioned, would you classify, is that a group that that you would say, or maybe they identify, is it atheists or agnostics or both? That's a really good question. The number of people who will tell a pollster in Canada that they are atheists or agnostics is still quite small, maybe one or two, maybe three percent of the population. This much larger group, this quarter or so of the Canadian population, are people who simply say, I'm not anything. Um, I might be spiritual, but I'm not religious. I might not have any religion at all. So very few Canadians still want to say, I'm definitely an atheist. I definitely don't believe in God. Or I'm definitely agnostic. I really don't know what to think. Most people in that category, uh, if they say they're spiritual, they're not very spiritual, actually. And if they don't, they just say, no, I don't want to have anything to do with religion at all. What does it mean to you when you hear someone say that? Because I, I'm often curious what, when someone says, I'm spiritual, but not religious, what does that mean? Well, it depends. One of the great things about spirituality is that you can find, define it any way you like. Right? You can be really, really serious and read and meditate and engage yourself in lots of spiritual activities. Or you can just go down to the beach and watch the sunset and feel a tingle in your toes and call that spiritual. Because the the great thing about spirituality is that it's defined by the individual. Religion is defined by religious authorities, you know, priests and popes and rabbis and imams. And that's what more and more Canadians don't want. They don't want what we used to call organized religion. We don't want people telling us what to do. I get to decide what I want to do in my religious life. And so I'm going to call that spirituality. And then I get to do what I like and believe what seems to me to be right. 
Hmm, interesting. Uh, we uh, looking at this uh, as well. Still uh, finding saying about two thirds of Canadians still report having a religious affiliation, and uh, it's a bit higher, I think, when we're talking women compared to men. Uh, and again, with the the spiritual or religious beliefs, so why do you think is it, it it's important then? Even if somebody doesn't, like you said, they kind of don't want that organized religion. Why is it important, people? Do you think to still say that they're spiritual? or to still till claim that, yes, but I, I'm still a spiritual person? Well, people find different kinds of needs met in the realm of religion. The minority of Canadians who are faithful churchgoers, that would be most of the people who attend religious services in Canada would still be Christians. If we bundle them in with people who are regular attenders of synagogues, mosques, gurdwaras, temples, and so on. We get a population of, I don't know, somewhere between 15 to the low 20% of the Canadian population. These would be what we would call the seriously religious people in a traditional sense. They clearly get a lot of needs met. They think they're communing with the Supreme Being or whatever is ultimate reality in the universe. They have a strong community of like-minded believers. They often uh, perform acts of charity for each other and for their communities. There's a wonderful sense of belonging. Lots of good stuff can happen for these people in these communions. Most of the rest of us don't belong to such communities, but we still have some sense that there is a God or gods. There's still some larger purpose to life than just making money and making love. There's more to my existence than simply what's in my checkbook or my datebook. So most Canadians still feel that they don't want to be seen as just crassly materialistic. But what is beyond that? Well, there is a lot more doubt and confusion on the Canadian landscape than there was 50 years ago. Hmm. And when you talk about it like that as well, how much of it is, do you think, that uh, it's a sense of community, a sense of belonging, it's something that maybe people are drawn to uh, and want to believe in this higher power, but is it not also that as humans, we don't like to be confronted with the possibility that when we die, that's it? That's it. Very perceptive question, if I may say so. I think that it helps to explain a lot of what's happened in Canada over the last 50 or 60 years. See, back in our grandparents' generation or so, back in as, as, as recently as the 1960s, the majority of Canadians went to church every week or to some other house of worship. So just in one or two generations, we've gone from being one of the most church-going people in the modern world to really not much better than the Aussies or the Kiwis and significantly fewer go to church than in the United States. What's happened there? I think one of the ways of explaining it is that we've had an almost unbroken streak since the Second World War of security and prosperity in Canada. We haven't fought any major wars. We haven't encountered any really deep economic depression. We haven't been threatened by a pandemic until the last year or two. And so the traditional reasons why people look to God and look above the horizon to try to decide, are we ready to die? Are we ready to go to the next life? Well, most Canadians, we don't have to face that. We live pretty comfortable lives. And even the people who do get sick and die, we put them usually nicely into hospitals or old folks' homes where we don't have to actually confront them very often. So I kind of wonder if most of us are going to be in for quite a shock when that diagnosis comes from our doctor that we're facing death. We're really not ready for it. So do you think that we will see, and I get what you're saying, that, that immigration is a huge factor when it comes to population growth and religious uh, religious affiliation in this country, but do you think we're going to still see or continued decline in people who identify as religious and take part in religious activities? Some sociologists and pollsters have wondered if our continuing attraction to people from other countries in the world will be such as to really change our religious landscape, whether we're going to become decidedly more Muslim or we're going to have huge numbers of Hindus or Buddhists or Sikhs. I'm not so sure. I think that when people come from other lands to Canada, one of the natural 
social places to find community with like-minded people, of course, would be in your local place of worship. There they often speak the language of the homeland, and the customs are the same, and the dress is the same, and even the food's the same. But what about the second generation? What about the third generation? Are they going to want to go to temple or gurdwara or mosque, or are they going to go the way of Christian young people, which is to enjoy the attractions of Netflix and skiing Grouse Mountain? I think it's too early to tell. We may find that the immigration patterns really don't make much difference, and that the second, third generations may be pretty much like every other Canadian, spiritual, but not very religious. All right. Interesting findings. We'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Very nice to talk to you. Well, some good news for the owners of bikes in the West End. Six bikes, at least, were stolen from a West End apartment building on Monday. Earlier today, Vancouver police announced they had made two arrests, arresting two men in their 30s. The video of the brazen robbery is crystal clear. So not a huge surprise. These suspects were identified in short time. Constable Tanya Visentine with Vancouver police saying this is another example of the extreme lengths some offenders will go to in order to commit crimes. So talking about this break-in at the apartment building near Nelson and Bidwell, it happened in the early hours of October 25th, just a couple of days ago. And again, the thieves can see be seen on the security camera video uh, removing the glass. And the building manager actually explained in detail to Global News about how they did this. Uh, so they came it was uh, on the nights uh, between saturday and sunday no sunday and monday and they came and they practically they removed the glass this one they took out all the trims around they were prepared they came with suction cups they took it they placed it over there they got inside they were prepared with bolt cutters as well and they stole six bikes these guys knew what they were doing exactly yeah they knew what they were doing. Well, earlier today, I caught up with Sonia Duick. Sonia Duick is a resident of that building, and she has been living in that neighborhood for almost two decades. Take a listen to part of our conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, I know these pictures uh, have circulated. A lot of people have been commenting on them. But for people who haven't seen them or heard what happened, what happened at your building? Yeah, so Monday morning, early morning hours, we ended up having some thieves come back for the third time within a week to our building and they managed to take out the glass window pane of our front door quietly within 10 minutes and proceeded then to steal six bikes. Now when you say unbelievable. T- yeah, when when you say take out the window pane because we've done a lot of stories unfortunately about thieves using different yeah. types of tools, smashing the windows and doing that smash and grab, getting out of there before anybody has time to really respond. This was different, though. Yes, they came and uh, scoped out our building uh, last week in the early morning hours on the first night, which we were not aware of until the second night of the Thursday morning, where they had come and taken off the trim, the rubber trim and the metal frame part that holds the glass in, And within three and a half minutes, he had that stripped off and left because he was probably spooked. And that was Thursday morning. And then they came back Sunday morning, or I should say Sunday night to Monday morning, and finished the job because they've already been practiced quietly because they want to do things quiet so nobody is aware of them. And they succeeded, oddly enough. And, and they did all of this, and for people that have seen the photos, these are really clear security camera photos. So they must have known or seen that there was a camera there. You would think from observing uh, some of the footage myself, it looks like a few of the fellows, the older fellow on the, on the uh, first night uh, scoping out the place, seemed to look right at the camera, and even the door remover guy, he seems to look up that way a few times, but I would guess that perhaps because they've been here at the building two times before the actual theft that nothing has happened, nothing was shown that there was extra security or anything happening here, that maybe they thought it was a dummy camera or not working because often that happens. I've heard that report many times in buildings like, ah, our security camera's not working. Right. So I think they just figure, you know, when opportunity strikes, let's, let's go. And this is a building in the West End. How would you just describe the building? Uh, We're a four-level 
wooden frame building. Uh, we've got an open courtyard concept. Um, unfortunately, due to the layout of the building, it's really difficult to find a good spot for bicycles to be parked. So unfortunately, they are close to the front door, making this a really convenient, you know, nab and grab situation. But these bikes have been parked there for many years, and we've never had anything in this uh, format happen at all. And it must have been, it's one thing to see, to see them kind of casing out the place and coming back like that. But there's even security video. I mean, what was going through your mind when you you see these guys coming in and you actually see them take the bikes, they crouch down, wheel the bike under the metal part of the door as if it's just, as if it's their bike. Yes. And I think that's what the problem is. The attitude of the thieves in our neighborhood, Never mind this incident, all the other incidents going on. They belong here. This is their area to scope out and and take what they they would like. And this is where I'd like to see, you know, more people be adamant about reporting anything they see suspicious, allow the police to make the decision whether this is a problem or not in the neighborhood. But we do need eyes and ears on the road. And unfortunately, some people are giving up going, well, this is just how it is. And don't report things. And that's part of the problem we're having due to so many incidences happening. People are getting exhausted from like, oh, here's another, here's another broken window. Here's another guy doing this or that, or that guy looks strange. But I've lived here for many years, uh, you know, well over 18 years in this neighborhood. And I've seen the uh, transition from things going uh, to bad right now, as, as everybody's aware of. Um, but we do need people to be vigilant and community active, you know, helps a lot. And when you say, so you've been there for, for almost two decades, how have you noticed crime yeah. changing even in the last couple of years? Well, obviously in the last couple of years, it's been a major problem with the pandemic, keeping people shuttered in more, less people on the streets, the average person on the street, um, the less eyes and ears there are on the street. So I always ask people, you know, still, you need to look out your window when you hear something, see something, take a look, be aware. You know, it's the best way to have our community function well is everybody's eyes and ears on the streets whenever. You don't have to be chasing anybody down at all, but just be aware. How does behavior of things happen? I myself am on foot in the West End all the time, so I see things all the time. And can feel and sense when things are going amok. And right now, as we know, there's lots going amok. How are you feeling about personal safety? Because we've been talking about that as well, and, and not that, that this is yeah. okay, but it's one thing to have a bike stolen. It's a huge hassle. It's not a good feeling. It's, right. it's very intrusive. But you can file a claim. You can, you can hopefully get a new bike. How are you feeling about your personal safety and how things have changed there? Yeah, personal safety for sure from everything I've heard with reports and everything over the last several years, never mind even the pandemic, pre-pandemic, we were already starting to see and hear more more problems is that, you know, we need to be really vigilant. I myself have two daughters, so, you know, us being all female, I I reiterate that to my children all the time. It's like your eyes and ears need to be peeled at all times. It doesn't matter if it's daytime or evening and be aware of what's going on. And I teach of what to do, you know, when strangers are around or you're feeling uncomfortable. The beauty of our West End here is there's usually somebody around somewhere. And so I always say engage, talk, speak loudly, um, you know, go to somebody if you're feeling, feeling insecure about some situation or unsecure about some situation and, and mention something to somebody. We, 90-something percent, I'm sure, of people out on the streets are not the bad people, meaning we can have people power to make our neighborhood better again, and we shouldn't back off. And the other thing, though, is not to get ourselves into harm as well. But Yeah, no, it's, it, it's, it's very good advice and, and, and a good reminder, you're right, that most people, most people are good. Uh, do, have you heard mm-hmm. anything, have any of the six bikes been recovered? It sounds like last night there was a bit of an update. I don't have full details, but it's possible that at least two of them have been apprehended, fellows that were involved in this situation, because there was a total of five that were on our cameras. And it sounds like they found some bikes, but whether they are the matched-up bikes with from our building or other buildings or other situations, I'm not sure yet. I haven't had that update.
Sure. I mean, uh, that would be some good news, though, uh, that uh, if they were recovered uh, and people could get them back. I I guess that calls into question, too, the punishment or if there is any punishment, because we've been seeing uh, and we've covered stories of this, too. People just going into stores, taking uh, there was the one case they took a couch, you know, people going into grocery stores, taking whatever they want and doing it because they know for the most part there's not uh, any punishment. Yeah, that is that is part of, of course, the problem we've all known for many years that it's. It, yeah, it just feels like they get a slap on the wrist and, and out and about they are on the streets again. It's it's frustrating. I know it's a big, big ordeal to change all the laws, but it's frustrating to the average citizen who you know pays their taxes and works hard for everything. And, and then you just get things destroyed or taken on you. It's, it's no fun. Uh, has the glass been replaced? And how are you feeling safety wise? Yeah, um, I don't feel any different because I know it's somewhat unsafe in general out there when an incident like this occurs. Um, it doesn't make me feel even less safe. I just know it's an underlying tone of not as safe in the neighborhood as it once used to be. Uh, glass was back. You know, this disassembly that they did, it took less than 10 minutes for them to get the glass out. It's not that big of a deal when you know what you're doing. Um, so glass has been repaired. One-way screws have been put in the frame so that hopefully, you know, can't be pried out as fast. But we're also getting um, some sheet metal being put up on the front door and extra security in the bike bike lock area. Which is, I mean, it's sad to, to think that that's what has to be done or that's what you need to do. But, uh, I mean, for the peace of Prevention mind. Prevention is... yeah. Yeah, prevention is better than the cure, right? So whatever we can do in general to protect oneself is uh, also a big line of defense, absolutely, for anybody at any time, meaning prevention as well with the whole safety factor is learn what to do in an incident when somebody approaches, when you're uncomfortable, take some self-defense courses, reach out to the you know local community, policing, et cetera, at the community centers, there's courses, there's classes, there's online things. We can learn. We, we can help ourselves. We really can. There's lots, lots of things to reach out to, you know, especially through the police and community centers and just talk to people. All right, Sonia, good advice. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. I know a lot of people can relate. So thank you so much for your yeah. time. You're welcome. Hope we get some of these guys off the street. We may be getting into the spirit of Halloween a little early, although not that early. It's Thursday, October 28th, and this weekend, my guess is there will be quite a few people who are either gathering with friends, whether you're taking kids out trick-or-treating, maybe gathering with other adults huddled around a cauldron. You know the expression, double, double, toil and trouble, fire, burn, cauldron, bubble. So why not, we thought, take a few moments now to look at some perhaps adult-themed beverages when it comes to keeping them creepy and keeping that Halloween theme. Well, Colin McDougall is a cocktail expert. He is with Corby Spirit and Wine and joins us on the line now. Colin, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's kind of fun to embrace the day, whether it's a holiday or or an event like Halloween and really go in 100%. So what are some of the cocktails that come to mind for you that are just perfect for a haunting Halloween night? I mean, you know, first ones I always hear, like the Bloody Mary is such a a go-to, right? I think it's the only time that it makes sense to do a Bloody Mary over a Caesar in Canada. (laughs) But, uh, um, yeah, I've got a few options here, you know, uh, that I think are great. Like, um, uh, at at this point, you know, everybody's got so much access to the Internet, so you can just Google Halloween cocktails, right, and so much comes up. So um, stuff like, you know, if you go Halloween cocktails on, like, Kahlua, um, they, they have like a Halloween section that shows a bunch off them where tonic was one of my favorites that came up that was Kahlua tequila and tonic because unless you want to get stuck in the kitchen or doing a lot of prep, sometimes ones like those are, are the go-to, you know, right. Because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, as a former bartender, I've been stuck in the, uh, in the kitchen, uh, making drinks. So I always caution people if you, if you're having some people over, you know, and, or you want to entertain and do maybe more than one of these, try these out and see how difficult they are before you really get into them. So that, that first one is a great option that, you know, you can make several of them really quickly. 
and not be stuck. Could you do that with a Bloody Mary as well? And uh, I'll fully admit, I don't like them and I don't like Caesars. I never have. And I know there's people in different camps. It's the one drink I've just never really acquired a taste for. But uh, could you make a big picture of it and then dole it out in some Halloween themed type uh, cocktail glasses? You totally took took it right out of my like so yeah absolutely do like do pictures of drinks you know old school style you know like and and that way like the occasion like the whole uh, punch bowl style really is just making a drink and then doubling and tripling and quadrupling up the recipe I think those are really cool and and they make your job a lot easier um, you know if you go to like the the Jameson website uh, so jamesonwhiskey.com like there's there's a really fun one on there called all trick no treat. Um, which is like a whiskey sour. It's getting a little more uh, into it, but you could totally batch like that up and then just shake them individually um, and, and really uh, have some fun with it. Because to me, it's either, you know, the, the cocktails for, for adults, you know, once the kids are to bed, it's about either mimicking the candy, you know, making mm-hmm. some of the toffee like that one, or having fun with, you know, just putting really fun stuff uh, like, you know, and, and camping it up a bit. Exactly. How important yeah. are the, the additions, things like the horseradish or the Worcestershire, and of course, whatever you use for a garnish when you're talking about the Bloody Mary? Yeah, I mean, think of it like, you know, like, you know, the accoutrements around like, you know, if you cook a steak, if you add some salt, it's going to add some flavor to it. You know, uh, um, those those kind of things like it's the little layers of, of details that kind of can make the drink really come to life. Um, and then, you know, and then again, like just kind of being like with the horseradish, like you said, if you're if you're doing this Bloody Mary, you really want to have a bit more spice. It's great. But you may not like that. You know, you may actually if you're a person that doesn't put Tabasco on everything, you may be like that horseradish actually has like got this drink on fire. So, you know, knowing your audience, knowing, uh, knowing the flavors and, and what they can do, I think can be a big part of it. And, and that's where I find like, you know, like the, these websites I, I rattled off here, like at Kahlua and at, at uh, the Jameson, um, they have like all the stuff fully broken down and explained for you. So they're, they're totally like Halloween proof. <laughs> that uh, helps out for sure. Uh, I'm looking at something, a recipe for something called the jack-o'-lantern hot toddy. Are you familiar with that one? Uh, I'm familiar with ones like it, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, this one talks about uh, you, uh, it's the Glenlivet pumpkin hot toddy. Oh, yeah, 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 and, absolutely. And you, yeah. you start with a, a, a steeping sachet of tea and yeah. add that to it. You add some creme brulee into it as well. It seems like, this one seems like you might get stuck in your kitchen if you were making these individually for friends. <laughs> Yeah, like that one is really is making almost like making a syrup out of like the creme brulee tea. Um, but you're and again, right, like that, that's a step like, you know, if you want to have that hot drink, it's kind of like it, it, like it says, it's a hot toddy uh, using those kind of spices, like, you know, the pumpkin spice flavors and creme brulee. Um, and, and it's and it's and if it dips down to like getting pretty cold this weekend, you might actually want that. right? You <laughs> might want that warm drink. Yeah, because I'm also looking at other ones that one this also has a, a scary name, the ice pick, which is yeah. <laughs> Polar yeah. ice va- vodka, it seems simple enough, but filled with ice, so top it with a little bit of lemon, a little bit of iced tea. It sounds great, but again, yeah. you're right. If you're standing outside and really cold, you might want to go for the more warmer beverage. That's right. That's the one that you've got when you're huddled in, the kids have crashed from the sugar high, and they're asleep, and then you're, you're you know, by the fire. Um, those cold drinks, you know, that are, that'll, that'll warm you up um, with, the, with the booze in them, but yeah. Uh, I'm also looking at one called the Spooky Sour. So it looks like it's a bit of a twist yeah. on the classic gin sour. If you're if you're into that, uh, putting in a shot of, of beef eater gin or whatever type of gin, a bit of lemon juice. Uh, simple syrup. What do you use for simple syrup? So simple syrup's a funny one. You can buy it now um, that has some preservatives that will help it stay. But all simple syrup is, is essentially taking like, and I always just use a cup as a reference point, but, you know, you, you have a cup of water, which you put into uh, on, on a pan on the stove uh, and, and add equal parts of sugar. So one to one, you just dissolve it, right? Like, and that's why they say do it stovetop. You can, you can just boil some water and then it takes a little more stirring to make sure that all those grains get out, but you're making like a liquid sugar. And, and that's all simple syrup is. The, the only downfall is that if you do like a one-to-one ratio like that and then and you're using this, it doesn't have the staying power of like a liqueur or like, you know, any booze. So you want to try to use that, you know, it, it really depends on the, on the uh, and there's tricks and, and stuff like that. That's for a whole other session on how to get to stay. <laughs> but uh, you get the idea. You want to try to use that, you know, probably like the night of or, you know, within a week. Uh, this particular beverage as well has an egg white in it. That's got to change yeah. up how long uh, the drink lasts. And is, is that finicky if you're dealing with egg whites? So, yeah, I mean, and so the, the real easy like go to there is to, to buy pasteurized egg whites. Lots of bars do it. 
Um, you know, like a, a real fresh egg white is going to give you better texture, but it's, it comes down to your, your, um, your level of comfort. I personally will eat cookie dough, <laughs> but some people say you got to bake that first, right? Because there is an inherent like risk there uh, of like, uh, so, you know, egg whites, I think are, are awesome if you have fresh eggs and you're, and you're not concerned, but really the foolproof method is, is to measure out like 25 mils or, or you know, or basically like a shot, uh, one ounce of that egg white and use that from like your, you know, um, egg whites that you buy at the store. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I too grew up eating uh, egg dough or sorry, cookie dough that had eggs in it. <laughs> egg dough, that doesn't sound good. Uh, but yeah. maybe if you're, if you're serving guests, it's probably uh, to be on the safe side. If you go for the pasteurized, then you just don't have to worry about it. Yeah, right. And it's always good to be safe, right? And and you can see that one there too has the green food coloring, which you can, they, they encourage you to have like a matcha tea, like, you know, if, if you're really into that, like, and you have that, at, I mean, it can be hard to track down in stores, but, um, you know, the food coloring, I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's fun. It makes a drink, you know, interesting and fun, uh, especially if you're just doing like a little uh, hosting at your, your house or whatever. Right. And it's just one drop. So not, not the end of the world. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you got your grenadine for red, you know, you got your green. Yeah. Uh, what would be your go-to then if somebody said, what's the best one or your favorite drink to make on Halloween? What would that be? Well, yeah, I mean, again, I kind of start, like, I, I've got myself into a lot of trouble by doing a really intricate one where I was using like a blowtorch to sprinkle stuff over top of it. And everybody's like, that's amazing. Can I have another one? I'm like, slow. <laughs> oh, everybody slow down. You're drinking them too fast. And I end up in the kitchen the whole night. So I always say trial these out. Like, you know, we've got tonight, tomorrow, Saturday to figure out uh, these recipes. And then you can decide, you know, which one is good for you. And then, you know, like the ones you listed, like through either like the beef eater site, um, you know, you name it, you can look and you can check out the ingredients um and see and see what's good for you um like my go-to what i'm probably going to be doing uh this uh this halloween is going to be that uh, on the jameson site um is that all trick no treat it's called um where you have to make a toffee syrup where you're actually um, taking one cup of sugar one stick of butter heating that down you know it's getting a little you know mixology there but uh but if you can get yourself through that making toffee, then you've got a really cool, like delicious drink on your hands. So. Mm, that seems like all treat, no trick almost. Uh, give the kids the candy. If you're having the, the butter and the sugar in the drink, you're, you're kind of getting that too. I think they misworded it too. I think you're right. That doesn't sound right. Eh? <laughs> and, and as far as the blowtorch, I would hope guests would know if, you, if your host is in the kitchen or whipping up drinks that involve a blowtorch, maybe just take one and then let the host come and join the party. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that's a rookie mistake on my my part, but yeah, <laughs> I agree with you too. <laughs> um, one other question. Do you ever kind of jazz it up with the container? I'm thinking of serving, Not, I'm not doing this, but I'm, I'm thinking somebody might serve something in a small pumpkin, which might bring a whole other flavor to it. But what about the vessel itself? Oh yeah. I mean, like I am all about that. Like I have a set of National Lampoon's uh, uh, glasses for eggnog at Christmas. So maybe this is the year that, you know, I say you go out and buy some little mini cauldrons or, um, you know, those gourds, like the, the thing about using like real fruit, like I've seen people use pineapples, pumpkins, gourds, just be aware that like, you know, you probably get one or two drinks. It's almost like those disposable st- straws, you know, they start to break down. So you might not want to plan on having that used the whole night. They're really fun. Don't get me wrong. But uh, maybe maybe this is the year you go out and, and buy the equivalent of the National Lampoon's Moose uh, eggnog <laughs> cups for, for Halloween, you know? All right. Well, some great ideas. And again, I'm sure a lot of people will be partaking in some of these this weekend. We will leave it there for today. But Colin, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me.